Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And on today's episode, we have a special guest. Let's tune in. Well, a very good afternoon, morning, or evening to you, and welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined once again by Bo Olette to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. How you doing, Bo? Good, man. It's good to be back with you two days in a row. Yes, and uh, hopefully we'll uh, get our fix in. You're just about to be leaving us. That's but right. for a short time, <laughs> and uh, fortunately, uh, as... Some are departing, other will be returning. Peter Martin will be joining us again tomorrow. We welcome him back from his time off and the elder shortly after that mm-hmm. as well. But note that while hosts are shuffling around, as you may see, the topic of the broadcast and your participation therein have not changed. If you'd like to send us your Bible questions, feel free to email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. That is spelled out for you on any of our live streaming platforms. If you prefer our website, we would would encourage it at calvarychristianfellowship.com. There you click on the Watch Live tab at the top of the screen, and you'll be sent to where we are live streaming from 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time every single weekday. If you want to join us on YouTube, it's a reason for hope, and Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. However, since we don't control when or why we are taken down from said platforms, we want to encourage you to make it a habit of joining us on our website. Though we can't notify you by mobile device, we are still available, and we can't be obviously banned on our own platform yet. So with all that said, feel free to join us on any or all of those platforms. Give us a like on Facebook or subscribe on YouTube, but we want to encourage you to participate in the broadcast above everything else. If your questions are sincere, that means that you want to hear the answer. They are about (laughs) the Bible, which means that the subject of not only the question, but the substance of the answer is about the Bible as well. We'll be happy to address them, and as well, if they are asked in the form of a question, as we say, the uh, bonus points are for those who follow Jeopardy rules. Make sure you phrase it in the form of a question, and we will phrase our answer in the form of an answer. So with all that being said, and to make the most of the time that we've been given, I want to start us off with a word of prayer, Bo, and see where the Lord takes it. Absolutely. Father, we thank you once again for this opportunity, and And uh, we bless your name, uh, the name above all names, uh, at the name of Jesus. We know every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are Lord. Uh, We thank you for this time. Thank you for the uh, on-air time. We thank you for the opportunity to get into your word now. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move your word into our hearts, that our hearts would be that good soil for your seed to fall upon. In Jesus' name. Amen. That is true. Now, to start us off, uh, we partially answered a question yesterday, but that wasn't the end of it. So we want to finish. The question originally came from Don, who was concerned about fire tunnels, something that's commonly practiced in Pentecostal circles and in the New Apostolic Reformation denomination, Mm -hmm. uh, the NAR, as they're oftentimes called. And her concern was how to warn your Christian friends about NAR if you see it creeping into their church. They've had conversations with a friend of theirs regarding biblical truths, specifically in regard to what the prophets are saying. We'll get to that in a minute. And it's hard to get past the I know in my spirit response. It's evident this person is placing experiences and feelings over Scripture, so how do we deal with that? Thanks. Well, thank you, Don, for the whole question. Glad we can deal with it as a whole this time. 
Obviously, just a bit of clarification about the new apostolic reformation. They would claim to be Christians, but they got something amiss in their leadership structure that really needs clarification if we're going to have fellowship with them, meaning we're going to consider them fellow Christians. And the biggest contention that we're going to have on this matter is that claim, Apostle. The new apostolic reformation is building up this idea that all of their leaders, all of their founders, and of course, all of their members are under the same authority and guidance as the first century apostles, that these are new apostles that have come to reveal biblical truth. And while some more than others have made uh, bold and brash claims, as they say, to be able to reveal scripture and so forth, there's a little bit of a catch for anyone in any context to claim themselves to be a capital A apostle in the form of church leadership. Now, the word apostle literally just means a sent out one. It would be the modern equivalent of a mailman or a cargo ship. It's just a vessel that's meant to carry something to somewhere else. In, I guess, the nearest equivalent in term, someone calling themselves an apostle today would avoid misunderstanding if they just called themselves evangelists. But if they call themselves an apostle in a church leadership position, they're claiming, and they've clarified this themselves in their writings and and, uh, speeches, that they are just like the original 11, and uh, of course filled in by Matthias later on. But the interesting part about all of this, being a sent out one personally by Christ, being given the opportunity to not only lead churches but provide revelation on par with Scripture, obviously we can point to more cults than we have fingers that of people who have claimed this sort of authority for themselves. But we don't just want to say, you're a cult and fooey on you, go sit in the corner. We want to make sure we know what an apostle is, what it has to be, and if it's not only possible, but if they fit those requirements. So to start off mm. with an apostle, obviously, we if they're going to claim to be like the first 12, we should go to the 12 and note what qualified them. First of all, this was a conversation that took place in the Acts of the Apostles. This is immediately following after Jesus' ascension into heaven, so 40 days have passed since Jesus' death and resurrection, and the Apostles are now noting, with the next big Jewish festival coming up, we have to figure out among this number of eyewitnesses of his resurrection what we're going to do about uh, a missing head among the mix, so to speak. It says in verse 15 of Acts chapter 1, In those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples, altogether the number of the names was about 120, and said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who was to become a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered with us and obtained a part of this ministry. So he was numbered among the disciples, the followers of Jesus. And it says in verse 18 what happened to him, but continuing on, he quotes, this is fulfilled in verse 20, it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate and no one live in it, and let another take his place. These are quoting Psalm 69 and 109. But then he says in verse 21, here's where we get the criteria, therefore of these men, 120 minimum, noting just the men, not the women, right? Of these men who accompanied us, All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, so they were alive to see the entirety of Jesus' ministry, for how long? Beginning from the baptism of John 
to that day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So in order to qualify as an apostle, two things have to be true neither of which apply to anyone in the New Apostolic Reformation, unless there's some, you know, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade shenanigans <laughs> going on here, right? Unless there's a time warp going on that we don't know about. <laughs> yeah, I got a wormhole here. One of the members was alive to see the entirety of Jesus' ministry. They needed to have seen Jesus from the baptism of John the Baptist, his baptism. They didn't have to necessarily be an apo- a, a disciple of John the Baptist, otherwise Matthew's out. But see the entirety of Jesus' ministry from that point all the way to his ascension into heaven. And being witnesses then of his resurrection would had to have taken part in everything the disciples did from that time, meaning they were also among the 70 that were sent out. They went in twos and performed miracles in Jesus' name. They would be held to the same standards that Old Testament prophets would when they claimed, we have been given authority over demons in your name. Notice, not in God's name, in Jesus' name. They identify that rightly as believing Jews, that the Messiah bears the same authority as God. So among the miracles, obviously these guys can claim this and that. I will just grant it for the sake of argument. But were any of them alive for the time of Jesus, as the apostles themselves were qualified to be first-hand eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection and for the time period that was laid out for them? Right. So on that criteria, the answer is going to be no, um, because no one from the apostolic um, um, movement uh, can claim that they were alive and witnessed what you just got done reading in the book of Acts. So that is what we could call like the big A, the big apostle. Right. So if someone claims to be an apostle, sometimes we have to clarify what they mean by that. Sometimes I'll say, do you mean an Acts, you know, chapter one apostle? Is that what you mean? Like that kind of apostle? And some people will say, yeah. And I'll go, well, you can't because, you know, you weren't there. You know, so that absolutely eliminates them from being the big A, the big apostle. And even Saul made a distinguishment between himself as an apostle and the twelve. He never said that he was among the twelve. He said, I'm the least of all the apostles, but God had mercy on me. He wrote this in his letters to Timothy and in Corinth. But building on this whole point of the gospel, the only reason we consider Paul's writing scripture is because they were tested according to the same standard as Old Testament prophets, which again, you have to apply to the NAR as well. And they've not only made a few interesting claims, which if you want to ask about in a follow-up, feel free to do so. But for the sake of time and clarity to the topic, when the substance of the question is, you see these trends, people start calling themselves apostles. People start uh, saying, well, this is my spiritual experience. You know, Jesus spoke this personally to me. How would we respond to that? Um, well, again, you, you have to compare everything to what the Scripture reveals. And is this how, you know, I always like to look at it this way, is this how people in the New Testament spoke is this how the um is this how they taught um so you know you don't hear that kind of language in the new testament where it's kind of in this like ooky spooky i got a revelation and this is what it is and uh, and you know that kind of idea 
Um, and so I, I think you first got to just go, hey, does this sound like the New Testament? When I read the New Testament, does it sound like it? Now, now, let me just say this about the apostolic kind of idea is apostolic succession is common in many different denominations. So there's many different denominations uh, of Christendom, and there's many what we would call cultic groups um, that we wouldn't say they are Christian, but they have distorted the Christian teachings, orthodox teachings, and they call themselves Christians. But they have a, a apostolic form of leadership. So, and the idea of apostolic is just like you were saying, Sean, it's just that there's this leader that kind of can be traced all the way back to the apostles kind of thing. And for those that are kind of more in, uh, you know, like, uh, like maybe a Catholic would understand this because there's those that kind of trace the Pope all the way back in lineage, you know, like to, to Peter and in, in their teachings. And so that is kind of like an apostolic succession. And so there's, so apostolic succession, I want everybody to understand is very common. It's not something that's abnormal, but it's, the idea is, do we see that kind of apostolic leadership succession that gets carried out through the New Testament? So is that the emphasis of the New Testament? Is that, hey, Paul's dying, who's the new apostle? Peter's dying, who's the new apostle? And that's the emphasis of the books that and, we're reading. And they wouldn't even use, even among Roman Catholic circles that would believe in this succession, they wouldn't say apostle per se, they'd right. say bishop or overseer. Right, right. Which, which and, and bishop and overseer is something that we do see in the New Testament when it comes to church governor uh, governance. Uh, you know, so we see that uh, very clearly. There's elders, there's deacons, um, there's pastors, shepherds of the flock, um, those kind of things. Um, but I want also to say this, is that, you know, in the book of Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, it talks, it says this, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. There's, we called it the big A, those that are amongst the 12. And then there's the giant A, and that is Jesus. You know, so when someone gets into this idea of, hey, I'm an apostle, you know, I, I always come, kind of come back to this idea of like, well, Jesus is the apostle and high priest, you know, of our confession. Jesus is the ultimate apostle. Um, he is the apostle that I truly want to follow. Um, I want to cling a hole to. It doesn't mean there aren't people that are sent out as like a small A. So if we can kind of organize this better, maybe there's small A, just those that are sent out. Think of missionaries. that We, we get the term missionary from the word apostle, actually. So a missionary could be seen of as like a small A. Then you have the big A, those that are a part of the 12, and then you have a giant A, and that is Jesus. But within the organization of the church, the church um, uh, government, you see elders, deacons, and shepherds all having various gifts 
And, and a lot of times they intertwine with one another. So I know a lo- there are churches that really want to separate all the, um, um, the gifts and say like, hey, I have the gift of evangelism, or I have the gift of teaching and preaching, or I have the gift of this. And, and they kind of tend to want to separate those things um, to a like a to a point where someone is if you're an evangelist you don't you're not a teacher preacher kind of thing, but you just don't see this kind of delineate delineation throughout the New Testament. So when they're talking, when Paul's writing, you don't see him breaking this all down like Titus is the pastor teacher, but he's not an evangelist. Timothy's the evangelist, but he's not a pastor teacher or you know. You don't see this kind of hyper, I want to use this term, hyper organization. You just don't see that in the New Testament. There is a lot of liberty when it comes to church government in the New Testament. The apostolic succession movement really goes hyper on this idea of apostle. Yeah, and in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he even notes there's distinctions, too. Does he say, are all apostles, are all pastors and teachers? I tell you, no. But the point Mm -hmm. was being, if you have a spiritual gift, pursue the best one, which is what the chapter then leads into. If you're called to ministry, then obviously, and this is the safeguard you can make when people start to talk like this, Don, to ask questions first to get a dictionary open as well as a Bible and make sure that they're in line with what that word means and aware of it. They make a mistake or they're just, you know, getting sensational or passionate about the Lord. Hey, last person to want to put water on your fire. But if on the other hand, someone is misrepresenting reality, then that's terms for correction, even though gentle and in a spirit of love and restoration, still needed because, as you can see, it can be the way cults get started if you look at people like Ellen G. White, but that's another topic. Now, when we're discussing this with other people, and this is narrowing it down not just from the claims of apostles, but also just claims of broad and general spiritual experiences, you mentioned already, Bo, that we need to compare what we have and what we know to what's actually there. And if what we know about God starts and ends with this, then of course you need to put an extra emphasis on the ends with. If people are going to add to Scripture, then there's stern warnings for people who would try to do that. If they emphasize Scripture but in a new way, well that's just called sound teaching. If on the other hand they're, you know, from these experiences just having something that wouldn't really apply it much to anyone apart from them. You know, God told me to, you know, turn at the street, and I was able to witness to somebody. And good for them. I'm not going to challenge it so much so. If they say it was from the Lord and it wasn't, well, God used it, and they'll answer for the deception part of it. Maybe it was just, you know, a good feeling, and God used it in spite of them. But the point being made is just that, Don. If someone's going off of experiences, it's like the person who studies the Bible by saying, you know, what am I going to read today? And they just flip open to a random verse. Oh, I'm in Nahum chapter 3. What's this about? That's not obviously going to walk away with edification. Yeah, and and I could also show you, like, uh, where things get hyper real quick when it comes to church organization. Like, uh, for just really quickly, like you've heard of, say, uh, some churches that are run by elders and some churches are run by um, what's called overseers and some churches are run by Episcopos. yeah pastors. And, and they tend to separate that. They hyper 
uh, those words, you know, they really hype them up where it's like, if you're a pastor, you're not uh, an overseer. And if you're an overseer, you're not an elder. But if you read First Peter chapter 5, and there's other places in the Bible where it talks about, let me just read this to you, and you'll see all three of them are here. The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. So just so you understand that some, some churches have, in a sense, hyped up an, one of these terms and kind of set it above another. So the overseer's more important than the elder, the elder's more important than the overseer, you know, however. But what we see from the Scripture, and that's what Sean keeps going back to, is that idea is, what does the Scripture say? Well, when Peter's writing his book, he says, hey, the elders who are among you, I want you guys to, what? Shepherd the flock. So what do elders do? They shepherd the flock. They're pastors. And then he tells them to be overseers. Notice they're all the same person. <laughs> so it really throws a loop in sometimes our own modern day, you know, or even ancient church, you know, organizational skills. We sometimes get a little too into our administration instead of uh, just uh, kind of going off of what the scripture says. And the truth is also in the reverse. We can get so into ourselves as a source of spiritual wisdom and insight that God's speaking to me that we do so even at the expense of truth. What you need to do, Don, is to be an example to the flock, not just among leaders, but also as individuals. Healthy sheep reproduce, and they also can, at times, keep each other in line. If there's a sheep prone to wander, but it's buffered in by the others wandering in the flock, then that's Mm -hmm. not only marks to the shepherd, but also of a sheep who knows what they need to trust and what the other sheep will hopefully learn along the way. Filling in the analogy, it's noting that you have the opportunity to say, well, I know why I should trust Scripture. Have you tested that experience or even tested that person's claim, going back to the leadership issue, according to what we already know and trust. Know those things, done, and you'll be just fine. Uh, if your church goes the way of the world, then, well, by all means, seek a different fellowship. But if, on the other hand, you're able to, through your faithfulness, be salt and light even in the midst of a place that should assume to already be a lampstand, well, then... God can use you exactly where you're at. But if on the other hand he doesn't, well, that could be an opportunity or a nudge to seek fellowship and being used by God elsewhere. Uh, here's a question from Isaiah. He wants to know, Deuteronomy 25, 11 through 13 significance. Are you referring just to verse 12, or do you also want to know about differing weights? Let me know. But uh, verses 11 through 12 is, I'm sure, something that every man period, would uh, completely agree to. We'll take through it step by step. Deuteronomy 25 and verse 11 notes, and this is, again, repeating the laws that were already given in Exodus. If two men fight together and the wife of one draws near to rescue her husband from the hand of the one attacking him and puts out her hand and seizes him by the genitals, then you shall cut off her hand, your eye shall not pity her. So, In the classic, I guess, uh, playground self-defense courses, they tell the guys never hit a girl, but they tell the girl, if a guy bothers you, kick him where it counts. You all know the vulnerable place (laughs) we're referring to. Obviously, we can make jokes about this all day long, but when it's usually brought up in this context, Isaiah, I'm sure you're thinking, isn't it a little 
harsh if uh, a woman gives a guy a cup check to maim her? Does this seem a little bit, you know, ancient and archaic and why the Old Testament shouldn't apply to our world today? Well, first of all, let's take a step back and ask ourselves the question. When the law of Moses was given, there's obviously a setting in which it was given to, in the same way that Bo, for instance, when you had your uh, little kids coming into the world, and I'll emphasize little for the sake of the point I'm trying to make, you had different rules for them, and probably more stricter, even borderline draconian rules for them before they were able to walk on two legs and knew the difference between a car and the asphalt, right? Mm -hmm. Obviously, if we were to be told today, you're not allowed to go outside, you're not allowed to touch silverware, you're not allowed to eat anything unless I'm feeding it to you, et cetera, et cetera, well, that would be considered even worse than most prisons until you realize, oh, that's a four-year-old. <laughs> that makes sense why right. they shouldn't be wandering outside. Yeah. And uh, my parents also making a comment. I'm sure they remember very fondly how I violated those rules. Mm -hmm. When we're talking instead about the nation of Israel in this state, where were they? They were in the Middle East all on their own. They had no legal system. They had no governing system. They had no judicial system. They had just been re-exposed to their theological system, and they were all going to be brought together as one and the same. And in this infancy of their nation, if you will, God had to set a lot of strict measures for them in regards to how they were to approach other cultures and their idols, how they were to approach each other, and yes, even how they were to deal with certain issues. Now, this is where we get into the second level of this dispute. When the penalty seems so harsh, like, for example, violating the Sabbath or gathering uh, burdens on the Sabbath was something that was to be considered a capital punishment. We think, isn't that too harsh? And we can go, maybe, but there's another possibility. Maybe I'm not treating it harsh enough. Why does God take this so seriously? So once again, we step back and ask, what was the audience he was speaking to? A nation's infancy, and Bo, we've talked about this at our... Uh, high school and uh, college career group meetings as well, would emphasize not just back then but today as well, this idea that kids weren't a bad thing. In fact, they were such a precious thing that the Bible goes on to describe them as a blessing from the Lord, a mark of favor from the Lord, blessed are those whose quiver is full of them, and why? Well, obviously because life is sacred, but let's just think in a practical and economic sense. If a nation's not having kids, where's that nation headed? It's disappearing. It's going into the ground. And if people aren't having kids, that's a problem for the nation's future, especially, for instance, and you can remember this back in the book of Genesis, when kids are prevented from coming into the world, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, hint, hint, say uh, kids that would eventually produce the Messiah like the Jewish nation would ultimately end up producing. It was genocide. Yeah, it was, well, that too. We can <laughs> note that uh, commentary in the Talmud, but I'm thinking of the incident with uh, Ur and, uh, and uh, Tamar and so mm -hmm. forth. When we're talking about these things, and again, without being too crass, to interfere with the well-being of a man's genitals yeah. is not only something that he takes very personally because that is an exposed organ and one of the only organs by the way that isn't protected by bone structure it not only leaves us in a vulnerable state but to damage that would be to affect the possibility of future generations that's how they were looking at this now you look at the present application and say, okay, so if a girl cup checks a guy, again, I'm going to use that because I got away with it, um, 
does that mean that we cut her hand off? Now, obviously, no, any more than these penalties under theocracy wouldn't apply today. But the principle needs to be examined. Why don't you mess with the guy's marbles? It's because children's lives are and could be produced from that. And because God views offspring, godly offspring, as sacred, that's not something that should be deemed lightly. Now, some people take this too far and say, does that mean that if I get, um, you know, operations that would prevent me from having children, specifically in that region of the body, a sin? And the answer is no. If you're going to take care of the needs of your household, you need to make sure you do so wisely. And if you're in a place in life where you're not able to support any more children or just aren't able to in general, I'd say to the latter it's a bit presumptuous, but the point still stands. Make sure that you're keeping in mind that idea that God wants me to bring children into this world and that I should be wise in how I do that. When there's a penalty that serious, we don't say, that's too harsh. We ask a question, why was it taken so seriously? And noting again, there's an economic reason, there's a spiritual reason, and there's also New Testament fulfillment reasons, aren't there? Uh, Say that again? In regards to economics, you want to keep having children for the well-being of the future of the nation. Mm -hmm. In a moral sense and in a theological sense, God wants there to be children, so for a woman to damage that possibility Mm -hmm. is considered more than serious enough to be considered in the same way that other crimes would be threatening human life. But then we also ask about the New Testament. Is there a further fulfillment of this? And the answer is also yes. Mm -hmm. Interference with and addressing to the nation of Israel future generations the fulfillment of the coming of Jesus Christ is just that important. And if we saw people not only messing with kids before they were able to come into this world, but also after they, why was it that Herod was seen as such a reprehensible human being by targeting children two years and under to prevent the coming of the Messiah? That was the ultimate motivation behind these things, the heart of Satan that's being represented there. We can talk about the Jewish traditions, but the point being made is that. So note the, again, setting that this is being put in, but when we're talking about these issues, just make sure that when we're dealing with these things, we take it in line of the entire Bible and don't apply it inconsistently. Yeah, and one other uh, thing I would mention about this situation is that chapter 25 of the book of Deuteronomy starts off like this. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. The law really brings about the value of justice, that there was to be judges that literally um, served just as that, people that would deal with the conflicts of the nation of Israel. And so you weren't to take matters into your own hand in Israel. You weren't to, in a sense, not anyone was to be the judge. Not anybody was to inflict the punishment. So in verse 2 of Deuteronomy 25, it says that it shall be if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence according to his guilt with a certain number of blows. Now, you see the whole point is that it's the judges that do this. It is, in a sense, the justice system of Israel. So for a woman to, if you will, 
um, do what she does when she sees her husband in a, a, a scuffle. If she is to jump in there and act as a judge, that was deemed wrong. It, 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 you were not supposed to do that. If the dispute happened between men, they were to go before the judges, and the judges were to um, judge fairly, righteously, and inquire of the Lord in these situations. So, you know, there's another emphasis that I'm just trying to stress, and that is the one of the just, uh, the justice in the law, and it not to neglect justice from taking place. So you're not to just take revenge on people. You're not just to go after them and just do what you want to do. Uh, and, and it's just like in our culture, too. You can't—if someone breaks into my house, I can't tie them up and gag them and put them in the cellar. And then someone, you know, come into my house and they go, hey, what's that noise? And I go, oh, someone broke into my house. They were going to rob my house. I'm giving them two years in the cellar. You can't do that, right? There's a government that lays down the law. If I were to do that, then I would be busted for putting someone in my cellar and you kidnapping. Know, yeah. Kidnapping. So that that is one of the big points of this section. And and you're absolutely right, Sean. The other big idea one that Deuteronomy 25 is really talking about is it gets into the Leverite law the idea of um, bearing children, having a, a progeny for your, your deceased brother's offspring. So there's a very big emphasis in this chapter on progeny and continuing family lines, which is, as, Paul, as Sean mentioned, very important. And actually, the first commandment of the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. And then uh, Isaiah also to follow through about uh, what about the other stat if there's sexual assault or some sort of assault taking place towards sexual organs for a woman, generally understood as rape. Uh, this is again, you're in Deuteronomy 25. Go to Deuteronomy 22. It's also in Exodus 22, but it yeah. only addresses the aspect of uh, compromising before marriage. You're supposed to marry the girl and. Um, basically pay the dowry, but if the dad doesn't like you, if she was young and she made a mistake and the dad knows better, get out of the house, uh, he'd still have to pay the dowry, but he wouldn't marry her. Now that's only addressing if it was a sexual encounter. It doesn't say rape, despite what atheists would want you to think. In Deuteronomy 22, it goes into the terms of sexual assault. Let me yeah. start in verse 23 so that we see both notes. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, 23, that's an easy one to remember. Actually, let's start in 22, since that's not only the easiest to remember, but it discusses the whole scenario. Deuteronomy 22, 22. So note four twos. If a man is found lying with a woman, married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man shall, uh, that laid the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. So first, you shall not commit adultery, capital offense, right? Now, verse 23, if a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, you shall put away the evil from among you. So what's this scenario? Mm -hmm. If they're cheating on each other, but the marriage isn't yet consummated. She cheats on him before the wedding, uh, the bachelorette party 
property mindset, if you will. That was also a capital offense. Now we get into verse 25. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside, the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman, for it is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. So the Bible not only equivocates rape to murder, but also the penalty that is due. And I'm sure everyone listening would agree with that. Obviously, we can talk about other religions and their faults in this matter, but that's the Bible's position. Deuteronomy 22, 22 through 27. Keep that in mind because it's going to come up more and more, but if you need further clarification, just make sure that the scenarios are understood. Adultery, penalty of death. Uh, preemptive adultery, cheating on your spouse before you're married, but while you're betrothed to them, still adultery, penalty of death. If it's a consensual encounter, but still not marriage, it's still adultery, penalty of death. But if the guy lies with her and it wasn't her idea, uses that note of crying out, that is not her fault. Only the guy's going to die. And note, it equivocates it to murder. Yeah, there, uh, yeah just for clarification, if two people in Israel that aren't betrothed if uh, a male has intimacy with a female then he is obligated to marry her right yeah so yeah exodus 22 that's right so just to just to make sure you're clear it's like it people in israel did want to have intimacy with other people but there was there was you couldn't just there wasn't this idea of just like hey there's no consequences because what you know when you have a society that has no consequences guess who wins the males right and that's what we're seeing today is uh you know when it comes to our society today and i don't want to get into the whole take up too much time but we see that a, a lot of men just aren't very responsible when it comes to their sexual you know at what they're doing sexually the baby mama mindset that you know i just got a girl pregnant well how do i get out of this and and how do we know that a lot of men kind of don't have a responsibility because when you abortion clinics are mostly um visited by young women alone yeah alone so uh that should be pretty big proof that Having a society that, uh, in a sense, lets men get off free, uh, uh, you know, is probably not the best. And know? also that would devalue the opportunity for someone to become a parent for whatever reason. Yeah. You have to ask them individually. And, and it's obviously antithetical to the Bible. I mean, fathers are important. What happens to a society when there's no fathers? And so you can see it's important to be responsible with our, our sexuality. All right. Um, This is a question that was asked to be anonymous, so we'll deal with it in broad strokes. Yeah. But someone's basically in a dilemma between three passages. Uh, The command, of course, to not forsake the gathering of yourselves together, such as the manner of some, especially as you see the day approaching in the book of Hebrews, that we shouldn't neglect fellowship in the church. 
also at the same time for wives to unbelieving husbands, not to divorce them, for they might win them over by their chaste conduct, and to submit to your husband as to the Lord, and noting as well that's modeled within the Trinity itself. The dilemma is that they're in a situation where they want to honor their husband's wishes by staying out of the church, not necessarily for spiritual starvation, but because of the COVID restrictions, despite those things being lifted in literally every state but three. So the mindset is, oh, we don't want to get sick. We, we need to stay here at home. And maybe if you're immunocompromised or anything as well, you can trust he has the best intents at heart. Or if they're looking for an excuse, it's not us with the information that we have to come to an objective conclusion yet. But if you're caught in the situation, you're the wife or you're the husband, and your spouse is essentially presenting an obstacle between you and fellowshipping with God's people, and you want to know, do I submit to them or do I obey God in this regard, or is there a way to harmonize the two? Because obviously the individual, they're still able to attend digitally, but they want to attend physically, and this is what's restricting them. So how would we go about harmonizing these three passages in action? Yeah, um, the first thought I have is that sometimes in loving people most is when, or, or, let me say, say it a different way, all the time, uh, in all times, we love people most when we follow Christ. And I know that's tough. We love people most when we follow Christ. So, and, and, and that's how we harmonize things, is, see, because we can get this idea that we're not loving people if we don't do what they say. That's not, that's not necessarily the case. The way we love people most is by following Christ most. So um, so we have to kind of debunk that kind of idea right off the bat, because you can't harmonize it if you, you don't debunk it. You know, you can't harmonize those passages if you really think that loving someone is by um, doing what they want you to do at all times. Um, that sounds to me more like that kind of weird codependency kind of idea. Um, and, and I understand that you, we want to obey, we want to, to love, you know, you want to love your spouse. And, but the way you love the spouse the best, that's the, is by moving towards Christ. So I'll share some passages maybe in a little bit, but what do you think about that? Well, you're put in a situation where you can either keep the peace or you can set an example or set an example by keeping the peace or mm -hmm. through your example, keep the peace. Obviously, complicated issues of more than one step, but there is, in fact, still a foundation here. Making the comparison to math, algebra is complicated, but if you remember what the numbers are, that's the first step into solving it. Mm -hmm. So let's start with the basics. Obviously, you're familiar, and this is for anyone in this trilemma, if you will, who are in a position where they have unbelieving spouses, maybe they came to salvation after they were married and the spouse just isn't tagging along, or they made that compromise and, you know, you're experiencing firsthand why this is not a good idea scripturally. The point, though, that Paul makes in talking about not to divorce your husbands because by your godly conduct you may win them through your chaste 
you know, your Peter, your example. Yeah. The point being made is this. If I'm to set an example, I need to set an example. I don't just fall in line. And an example is something that's demonstrating proactively the heart of God as a priority. Obviously, the most practical approach would be, well, you're welcome to stay here, but I really want to go to church. And he, you know, closes an iron fist on you. Obviously, if it goes to domestic abuse, then call the police. If it goes into isolation or emotional abuse and mm. manipulation, yeah, seek counseling. But if it's just, well, I just, I don't want to the catch the, the COVID. Okay, well, I'll get tested if that's what you wish, but I'm going to go to this place uh, one or two days a week and when I come back, we can either talk about it or we can just go on with our day. That would be the best case scenario, is just allowing you the freedom to do what you wish regardless of what your spouse thinks, because God is the higher priority in your hierarchy, and that's a godly example. If you're put in a position where you can just be content with digital worship and God will minister to you there, then make sure that you're still seeking out the other purposes of church than just receiving the word. Seek out other times where you can gather with godly people and be an encouragement to one another if you can't do that at your local fellowship, because that's a purpose of church too, being with God's people. Mm -hmm. If you can find ways to circumvent and keep peace with your spouse, then by all means that's a good alternative, not the best but it is an alternative mm. for your sake, but not for theirs. The third example in which both are left in a neutral party is there is a time and a place to make these sort of stands. And if they just need a minute to calm down and let the, the news cycle filter through their brainstem a little bit, then you can just wait this out and hopefully they'll have something else to worry about in the future that either will give you an open door to attend church, maybe even with them, or not. But I'd say there is an option to remain neutral. But note, these are three options, all of which are equally valid. That's what makes it a difficult issue, is there's not a wrong answer. There's just a more right one. <laughs> yeah, and what I mean by following Christ most is, you know, the Bible teaches us in the book of Romans, uh, I want to say it might be chapter um, 13, 12 or 13 that says whatever's not done in faith is sin and is that 13 sean i think so yeah it might be at the end of the book of our chapter 13 um but there it's a good statement right whatever's not done in faith is sin you know you don't want to make decisions out of fear um which will cause you resentment and bitterness and discontentment and all the things that really will hinder you in your life um uh, you might make a decision and say, oh, well, I'm making this de decision because, what is it, 14? Yeah, 14 and verse 23. 14, 20 what? 23. Yeah, you might be making a decision saying that, oh, I love my spouse, but really, really, you're just building a lot of resentment. So you really have to have an honest heart, really come before the Lord in honesty and say, hey, God, let me make decisions to really glorify your name. Let me make decisions that really are done in faith those kind of questions and really lay those things out is, you know, how can I glorify God? And, and you can obviously glorify God by going to a church. You can obviously glorify God by um, giving that up for, um, you know, a short period of time. I would never recommend a long period of time of not being in fellowship um, at all, um, simply because the, the Bible tells us that the manifold grace of God is seen within the, the move of the Spirit in the individuals within the church. And so 
if you're not part of a fellowship, it's really hard to uh, be ministered to, you know, and have people's diff- their different gifts um, be, uh, in a sense, uh, to, for you to be blessed by those gifts if you're not present. And of course, the command of the scripture is that, you know, we do not forsake the assembling of ourselves, you know. So, you know, th- the Bible does emphasize this idea of whatever's not done in faith is sin, so you need to ask that question. I think that's really important for yourself. Hey, what can I do in faith to God? How can I, what do I want to, how can I serve God best? That's what I want to do, is I want to have a heart that serves God. And notice in chapter uh, 3 of 1 Peter, when it's talking about this submissive wife to the unbelieving husband, it really hones in, in verse 4, on the um, personality that you bring to the table, so to speak, as a wife. You know, are you doing things out of bitterness? Oh, yeah, I'm home. I'm sacrificing my church for you. For you. you know, is it that kind of attitude? Or is it this hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious, it says, in the sight of God. So, you know, are you able to do things in a spirit-filled way, you know, and, um, you know, and that, you got to kind of look at those things and, and see where you're at. Um, you know, only, only that person who asked the question knows their spouse and knows if their spouse is using uh, the COVID uh, issue as a kind of a battering ram uh, for them uh, as a way to control um, not that we haven't seen control happening in the, in the 90s. It was AIDS and, you know, <clears throat> H1N1 and everything else. People right. are going to find excuses. But yeah, but it could, you know, and only you know that if, if your husband or wife is acting in that kind of a way. Um, and and, and if, if that is the case where they're being stubbornly controlling, then you know, you submitting to that stubbornly controlling attitude um, in a way where you are not going to the fellowship, um, to me, is not a good thing. You need to be honest with your spouse and let your spouse know that, hey, we need to work on some of that fear and some of those controlling issues. Um, You know, we have to deal with issues. Um, But as for me, I need to serve the Lord. And part of Jesus's words, too, are pretty radical, right, about following him, that there would be a division in the family, right? And, uh, and we understand that as Christians, is that sometimes our decisions aren't going to be the most popular, even amongst our own family. Yeah. All right. Um, another question from Isaiah, who wants to know how to pray for someone who's the victim of uh, sexual assault as a man. Because obviously it's more showcased when you have someone who's vulnerable and put in that position where they could end up bearing a child and that circumstance surrounding it, all of the psychological horror. But then you look at it from the other stat, the person who's supposed to and thrives on control in his life and that being taken from him. Uh, Isaiah mentions that they're a single father now as a result and that whole mess. How would you pray for someone like that? Well, Isaiah, again, we're not going to say that the experience of rape or sexual assault in any capacity is the same across the board or across genders or even across individuals. Every person's going to need the comfort they need, and that's what you need to provide. And let me read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where we're given a pretty good outline of what that looks like. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation. 
difficult times, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Now, if we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effective for the enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or if we're comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation, and our hope for you is steadfast, because we know that as you are partakers of the sufferings, you will be partakers of the the consolation. The point that's being made is basically threefold. First, make sure that that individual doesn't isolate themselves in their trauma, in their wounded state, because regardless of how well they're coping with the trauma, it's still there. And if you isolate a wound, that's when infection set in, so to speak, if you're going to think in psychological terms. Find this guy someone who has been through similar experiences, which is difficult given the rarity of certain things, but they are still out there. And find him the ability to either, and this is the second stat, focus on others and sharing from their experience how God is getting them through this, then just focusing on them toughing this out as a man on their own, because obviously this is traumatic no matter who it's experienced or who it's inflicted upon. The third thing is, again, apart from isolation and focusing on other people, it's understanding where that comfort comes from, because if this took place in his life, the question isn't whether it was good or not. There is no way to define this as good, but can God bring good out of it? Can God use it as a ministry to people who may be in similar bouts of suffering and as he receives comfort, he can also share it with others. Look for a ministry, make sure that he's focusing on other people that may be in similar boats, and of course, don't let him isolate. When people are processing trauma, uh, Peter Martin will be joining us tomorrow, and uh, his return from Afghanistan, he was able to get through his post-traumatic stress very well because he surrounded himself with people who had been through the exact same things that he had. He spent and lived most of that time with his unit that he served with during his uh, deployments. And I'm sure he can reiterate this point when he's talking about it in his book, uh, The Fellowship of Suffering. But the point being made, though, is that if anyone is going through any hardship, make sure those are the three focuses and goals, because on an individual level, only they will know the degree of hurt that they've endured, and only God can know how to effectively minister to and through them, regardless of those circumstances. Is there uh, anything more you'd like to add? Um, I was just going to say that this is a lot more common than uh, we are led to believe in our culture. Um, Many men are molested as young men, and um, I think the best way to pray for them is uh, to pray that, uh, um, first of all, just for their... um, their their inner healing you know that they not be riddled with shame or guilt a lot there's a lot of young boys that are molested as kids and they feel some form of shame or um you know some kind of guilt for that and so in being specific in prayer you know pray that you know they would have uh their heart um made whole and uh, that any, any guilt or any shame would be something that would be taken to the, the cross of Jesus Christ, who um, is there to, to help them and heal them and, and, of course, make them complete. Um, 
and maybe pray for yourself that you can just be a friend to that person. Um, most of us in the world, as we get older and older, realize, realize that um, it uh, how much guilt and shame can really um, handcuff us. So we can all sympathize, and some of us can even empathize with uh, someone who might be uh, carrying that kind of weight around um, on a day-to-day basis. So hopefully that helps. All right. And then to finish up, a question from Yari. Uh, what is Deuteronomy 23 referring to regarding no dwarves or hunchbacks should be in the priesthood? Is this discriminatory? Let me read the passage. It says, he who is, this is verse one, emasculated by crushing or mutilation shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. One of illegitimate birth shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord. An Ammonite or Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And then goes on to mention the historical event that notes that isolation. Now, it says in verse 5, Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, the attempts for them to curse you, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing because the Lord loves you. You shall not seek their peace nor their prosperity all your days forever. You shall abhor an Edomite, he is your brother. You shall not abhor an Egyptian because you are an alien in his land. The children of the third and fourth generation shall not to them may enter the assembly of the Lord. So if you have another passage that would mention those specific uh, obviously, physical handicaps are read into that more than just those who have been crippled or eunuchs. But let's just focus on the text. Who were those that were excluded? Well, people who were later in the books of the Bible included. If you remember the curse of the Moabites, there were exceptions to redemption. Ruth. And, of course, the Canaanites being excluded from the fellowship of the Lord. Rahab. <laughs> and on it goes. These weren't carte blanche. But the reason is, roll the priesthood not uh, conducive to handicapped lifestyle. God You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.